I had already had a strong feeling that nuclear family was a very unhealthy direction for humanity to take, that for 50 million years we have been tribal. I think the smartest thing I ever did in my life was to become communal. We get no education on liking ourselves. We get no education on how to be a healthy couple. And we don't even imagine that we could live communally as a group, as a tribe, though we've been that way for 50 million years. My first costume was a gorilla. And so I wondered how can 20 adults living together get along with each other? Do they get along because they're forced? Because there's a boss or a set of rules? No, it's because they have relationships. And so I would say every effort that I put out was to try to get us closer and closer. My brother was there, my wife's brother, a friend from high school. These were buddies, people who had a flair for social change, the children of the 60s. And one of the most important things I think we did was to take an 11 month trip, all of us on one bus, Europe, North Africa, and Russia, where we never left each other's company. We all slept together on the bus like this, so tight that if one laid flat, another one had to lay up on their side. And at the end of that trip, most all of them moved in to live together and to be this hospital. We were called the Zanies more than we were called anything else. Do you remember when that choice was made and it was a collective decision? I don't know how collective. I know it was quick. My memory is that Zany was on these little flip matchsticks. Uh, there was a brand called Zany's and they had fun pictures and we were fun people. How's it going today, Patcher? <laughs> Lars, it's the best day of my life. So you woke up this morning and what happened? Well, I, I knew that this was the best day of my life. Hey, sir, how's your day going? You know, thanks for asking. It's the best day of my life. Welcome to the best day of my life, Patch Adams' journey to the Nobel Peace Prize nomination with Patch and Lars Adams. In this episode, we're going to hear about Patch's hippie commune years, hippie parties, hippie drugs, the hippie hospital, and the weirdest hippie DIY craft project ever. Well, there's actually a couple of them, plus really weird hippie movies. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine. Thanks for listening. Quick parental warning, this episode does talk about hippie parties, so kids, if you're listening, make sure your parents are cool with that. I was in South Carolina running a day camp um, as part of my program. At that point, I was a recreation special arts specialist. So I was running this horrible day camp. The camp was fun. The horribleness was South Carolina, but while running that day camp, they were traveling. And then when the day camp ended, Lewis Fulweiler got a bus, got a van, and he was married at the time um, to Cindy. 
he bought a van and in that van he took Gailey, myself, um, Stephanie Scott, I think there was five women. So it was this older, uh, you know, the older man with all these young women, you know, in their teens and early 20s, driving across the country to meet up with Patch, everybody else. So that's Lars's mom, Linda, talking about the dawn of the hippie commune. Now, all the names she mentions are members of the Zanies. Don't worry about keeping track of the names. Just know they are all hippie commune members. Patch and them didn't know that Lewis was driving us across country. Leo and Patch thought that Gailey and I were flying out to meet up with them for the last couple of weeks of the trip out west. So we met them, I think at the airport where they were supposed to meet us. And all of a sudden there's all these women. And at that point, Marcus had his van there. So he wound up being a caravan of three vans um, traveling through basically the Northwest. Lewis didn't want us, the women, to drive the van. because he didn't trust us. So it's pouring down rain. We're driving on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and there's a young hitchhiker out there in the pouring rain, hitchhiking. I guess Lewis could tell it was a guy. So he would rather pick up a hitchhiker to help him drive than have any of us women drive. (laughs) So we picked up this guy. He opens the side door of the van to get in and there's five beautiful young women, pot smoke everywhere. And he jumps in the van and he was just going a little ways with us, you know, um, maybe to St. Louis or, you know, but every time we stopped to get close to where we're gonna drop him off, he decided to go to the next leg and then the next leg until finally he said, well, I gotta meet these guys. And that person was Dave Brittingham, who's been with us, around us ever since. Turn on, tune in, drop out. For this crowd of hip young Americans, these six words are shorthand for an electrifying experience most of them know well, an experience called the trip. You decide you want to continue to foster that sense of play in, uh, and follow the, because the, the, you were seeing that other groups of hippies and communi- were forming around the country. And so you decided you wanted to start your own commune. With your, with your friends that you already had an established, playful, silly, radical activist connection with. You know, I, I was accepted to do a residency at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And I, we, I, I think that's when we moved into 1318 North George Mason. So it had, I think, rooms for three. We were, we were partying. We did playful things there. We did costumes. And I I definitely was looking. I probably went to Twin Oaks at that time. You know, a commune in central Louisa, Virginia. And and I was bumping into communes in Washington. And, And then we started to do crazier things there and we painted silly things in there and we and so that was I could almost say the first commune commune 
And, and then I, I think from there we went to the West Ox Road and that's where we started farming. Linda was making costumes. We were married in Louis XIV costumes. Here's Linda again. So we started making costumes. I would stay up until two or three in the morning making the costumes for the coming weekend. Even if they were just, one of them was just little tunics you threw over you. And, that, and then we set up a silk screen downstairs because I was at the rec center, I had access to art supplies and stuff. So we wound up setting up a silk screening area down in the basement. That's when we started silk screening t-shirts. We started silk screening um, costumes. And that, that's when a lot of the, co the, it really started. And then it started with the animal. First animal costume was the gorilla costume. So did you guys work together making the gorilla costume? Yeah, I made the bodies and he made the faces. He, he sculpted in clay and then did paper mache faces or heads. Um, he'd work with the leather, say, you know, to sew feet. If he wanted to sew leather on the feet, he would sew the leather on the feet. Yeah, so it was totally collaborative. You know, and it was all the brainstorming around the conference table, brainstorming on what the next would be, what next filming we would do. Um, I think one of the next costumes we made was a gorilla. That may have been a giraffe for me, because the giraffe was my animal. Then we started, we even started wearing them, not sure our connection was at the Smithsonian for different festivals. I think we paraded in all our costumes one time, even at the Cherry Blossom Parade. And then we carried it with us to Europe, because after the year at Danville Street, we all traveled through Europe for a year. And we eventually picked up silkscreen supplies. I think in France, we picked up silkscreen supplies in France, and then we had a portable silkscreening thing set up. So we would go to different places. I would design the cutout, and then we'd silkscreen at t-shirts. When did you decide to open your house and how did you convince everybody else on the commune to embrace opening your house to see patients? It fit in for us to question everything, the clothes we were wearing. I mean, I was trained to be a doctor in 7.8 minutes. I like three or four hours. I like to get to know them and have a, a relationship. It also needed to be free. That was clear way at the beginning. Okay, so Patch's commune and the free hospital are one and the same. The hippie commune was unique because it doubled as a free clinic for anyone. So the commune is the Zanies, and the free clinic at the commune is Gesundheit, which is also the name of Patch's dream fantasy hospital, which is not yet built. I hope you're following me. Now, we're going to get deeper into the hospital in the next episode, but it's important to know that the Zanies Commune was also a place for free medical care for anyone who made their way to the communal doorstep. And not free for poor people. Free. And so we were open 24-7, and there's a term primary care, which means mental illness and seeing a family doctor, not major surgery or or even minor surgery in most cases suturing we would do suturing but no surgery we didn't have anesthesia we had some medicines we didn't 
we had made our own ethical decision not to do psychotropic medication. That's all mental health medication and be very restrictive in pain medicine because addiction, quote, addiction was a big issue in, in the practice. And it was nice having my background in medicine, which wasn't very long, or JJ's, his wasn't very long. We both did one year of internship, and then we started Gesundheit. JJ is a commune member who was also a medical professional. Up until 73, we were open, not in, the, not in West Ox Road. Okay, that was the main place. So we had two and a half years, and during that time, we set up the Europe trip, which was 73, 74, and 11 months. Uh, and its purpose was for us to be closer, that if we were going to live communally, living close was a, and on top of each other and exploring something collectively was a good idea. People went along with it. It was uh, amazing that, that so we bought this bus in Bristol, England, and did it. Came back to West Ox Road, and that was the closest thing to the Gesundheit model of anything we've had, really. Although we have had some activity in West Virginia. And although we had done some minor farming before, we could actually do farming we could have goats, we could have chickens, and we did these things. We, we very quickly decided to have, I would say Friday and Saturday night rock and roll parties. And rock and roll was a very important part of our recreation. And I believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. I 100% believe it. Why I believe that is because I know how it feels when you sing it. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. Because this is a thorn and a gun is I got to go, go, Johnny, go, go, Johnny, be good. Will you tell us about your goat responsibilities? And, right. and tell us the scope of, of your relationship to the goats from from when you took care of them to then what happened with them? In a communal structure, I mean, if you want to be healthy, you want everything taken care of. So it was, the first schedules were cooking and cleaning, and, and then tasks were added. I think Linda got the first goats as a mom for you. And I was partnered with Linda, and so I, I milked with Linda and I, it was very easy for me to slaughter the goats. I would invite meat eaters to come and watch me slaughter the goats. I would uh, give anatomy lessons. Uh, and because when you slaughter a goat, you take off the head, you cut down away the skin and all the organs fall out and so you can you can talk about each one of those organs you see two kidneys a stomach a small intestine a large intestine a heart and 
And a lot of people have never touched those things. So they were invited to touch them. A lot of people were questioning whether or not to eat meat at that period of time. And so I wanted any people who were questioning whether or not they wanted to eat meat to come and watch me slaughter and even take part if they want to. Did you being a doctor and being trained as a doctor in anatomy and playing with <clears throat> animals in science classes when you were younger, did that can like did that make what made it easy for you to slaughter a goat? Well, I think as soon as you agree, you know, whether you're farming and, and what kind of vegetables you're gonna put in the ground and fruit, the same is true that if you're going to have chickens, do you want layers or no layers, just fryers? And who's gonna do it and how are they going to do it? And these, these are all things that hippies and people that started a commune had to question. It's fun to eat supper with your family, especially when there is good food on the table. Strong, healthy bodies. They are good foods to eat. When we started out, there were very few what you could call vegetarians. Okay? There were people who we're glad they weren't killing the animals and that sort of thing, but very few people that were strict with eating habits. That did happen over the period of time of us being open. And so over time, there were people who did not want to see a slaughter. Some were very curious because we had it so if you wanted to blow in the lungs they, and see them fill up, you could do that. You could have curiosity and we would try to feed it. Hatch, will you tell us about your goat scrotum purse? Okay, I was the slaughtering, I was the butcher, and I also tanned the hides of goats. Okay, and you don't kill the females, okay? Those you save for milking and for having babies. You slaughter the male goats, and unless you castrate them, and, and some people castrate so that there's no hanky-panky going on in the barnyard. A goat can feel wonderful, a goat can feel mad. Feel mad, feel mad, feel mad. It ain't bad to feel mad. If someone pulled the hair on his chin, <laughs> Would a goat say nothing, stand there and grin? No, I get mad, I get mad, I get mad. It ain't bad to get mad. Here's Linda on that. And it was the um, Muslim community that taught him how to very religiously or very um, respectfully to slaughter the goats. You know, because before that, it always been use a gun and, you know, didn't really like that. I think Patch had somebody do that once and we said, I can't do that. So the Muslims would come and buy our goat meat because they needed their halal meat. So they have to do it, you know, they have to say a prayer, they have to slit its throat, and they have to offer it water just before they do. And, you know, so they have a little ritual. And they're the ones that actually taught, and then they would slaughter it right there. And they would bring their whole families, all the boys um, with it. Um, so they're the ones that really taught Patch how to do it. Um, I couldn't 
I participated in one slaughter and I couldn't do that anymore. I'd be in the kitchen cooking. We'd, the fresh liver was always great. The fresh organs were always a treat, but I couldn't, you know, I raised them. He didn't want to neuter the male goats because he wanted the scrotum to make a scrotum pouch that he would wind up wearing and, and giving away or selling at the Renaissance Fair. So that was his little money pouch at the Ren Fair. Back to Patch and Lars. At the time, there was a, a fair amount of pot being smoked. So goat scrotum, dope pouch, ding! Seriously, listeners, I grew up with a lot of hippies, like real hippies and teepees and buses and communes, and, and I've never met a hippie who made his own dope pouch out of a goat scrotum. Do you guys think that any of the other Nobel Peace Prize nominees made a goat scrotum pot pouch? I honestly don't think anybody has. Actually, that's not true, because I looked it up on the internet and I found a picture of one. So I encourage you all to Google that shit. Jump on in. Water is mine. Mine is yours. I was one of the organizers for fun events. So often for birthdays, what what might the person want? Would this be a, this kind of event or that kind of event? Close on, close off, uh, those kinds of things. Extracurriculars. Extracurriculars. And we were we were really playing with being infinitely close as friends. I would say that, that was our bag. Were you guys taking psychedelics? Sometimes, and some people frequently, and some people not very often. I didn't, my personally, I didn't jump into LSD right away. I did try mushrooms pretty easily. I think when people ask me, I say, I may have tripped 12 times. I've done enough for the both of us then, Dad. <laughs> Well, you're my boy. <laughs> Turning on, tuning in, and dropping out is what happens to you when you take a dose of the strange new drug called LSD. You know, I wasn't saying no all of the time. I was thinking, if I'm experimenting, how is it that he can't be experimenting? I, I'm surprised you, it's only been 12 times. Well, I, I smoked a fair amount. Okay. Mm -hmm. And to tell you the truth, I really enjoyed psychedelics when it was only close friends. I, I have, then I have a question for you. Uh, did Gesundheit do party, like, a, they call it rock med, or were you party doctors? Did you, like, take care of people um, well, we on were... psychedelic trips that, that were having a hard time? Oh, many times. 
I mean, we, it, it was in our home. So whatever was in our home, we cared about and had, we eagle eyes. We didn't want any uh, misbehavior of men to women. We, we didn't want racial things to form. And so it's where Goofy became the zanies. A lot of people tripping don't know where they are. And many of them can learn if they feel safe with the teacher. And so that happened a lot. Do you have any memories of what that would look like? You're surrounded by what's called a rainbow gathering, Shantasima. It's a Native American term, and it means that you're safe. <laughs> you're made safe by this group of people. They would all be connected, and then I, you find a story they will follow. Everyone who was once part of a hippie commune has a good pot story. Lucky for us listeners, Linda delivered the dirt. So this town was Livingston, Montana. It was on a Saturday, and we were going to go spend the night in a ghost town. So we were picking up supplies for dinner. And um, I, as soon as we got to the town, I felt uncomfortable. I said, something's not right. I just felt really uncomfortable. Now, Lewis... Jim Warren and Otter went off on their own van. They were the three um, Bell Company executives, so they went off to get their steak. You know, we're eating on spaghetti. Now, once again, don't worry about keeping track of all the names Linda and Patch mentioned during this episode. Just remember, they're members of the Zany's Hippie Commune. And um, so they weren't with us. So we're in a bar. We stopped in this bar, you know, cowboy bar, 25-cent beers, pool table. Everybody's having a great time drinking these beers and, you know, living it up. And I'm going like, you got to get out of here. You got to get out of here. You know, I was expecting fights or something. I said, I just, I couldn't drink. I go, and and I, everyone's just saying, oh, Linda, you're such a, you know, stick in the mud or whatever. And I said, no, something's going to happen. And nobody would listen to me, of course. So I just sulked. So we um, finally get ready to leave. So we go to the post office parking lot where we parked the van. And we, they're thinking, oh, Saturday, nobody's in the post office. So what happens? They uh, start lighting up joints um, with the side of the van open. You know, it's the van with just cushions on the floor. So they're, so they're in there, you know, smoking pot. Well, of course, there's people in the post office and they're looking out. So the next thing we know, all of a sudden, we are surrounded by police cars like a roundup, <laughs> we're surrounded. <laughs> I'll never forget, Patch is holding a joint and he freaks out totally. What do I, oh, what do I do, what do I do? I said, put it in the freaking beer can, <laughs> don't put it out. 
Anyway, we wound up two vans. We got busted, all of us, except for the three executives. They did not get busted. Um, but the thing is that after we got busted, I felt fine. I said, okay, well, that's what was going to happen. I knew something was going to happen. Well, that's not so bad. Nobody's getting hurt. We just got busted. Well, then they wound up doing a search, but you got a bunch of city kids, you know, smart ass city kids who knew they were searching illegally. So yeah, they found ounces of hash, you know, a quarter pound of pot. Yeah, they could have totally toasted us, you know, absolutely could have toasted us. And uh, so they, you know, so it was overnight in the jail. So the guys go to one jail. I think they went to the county jail and the girls went to the city jail where the police, where all the cops and the sheriffs there loved us. They kept telling, your hands are so soft when they're fingerprinting us. And they were so worried for us. And I kept going like, it's okay. No, it's fine. You know, we're fine. Nobody's hurt. You know, we're good. We're good. Well, Lewis and them are freaking out, but they've got enough sense. So they're immediately calling up information. You know, Lewis on the telephone company could actually talk to somebody in information. So he called up information and said, you know, a good lawyer, <laughs> we need a good lawyer. And they said, what's it for? It's, oh, it's for, for drugs. And they said, oh, we got the lawyer for you. Billings, Montana, Timer Moses. You gotta get Timer Moses. <laughs> so we spend the night in jail with the poor sheriffs worrying so much about us. And the guys were having a great time with the sheriffs over and the police on their side too. And then um, the next morning, and Lewis and them are freaking out. They're hiding. They try to they find a hotel with underground parking or something so they could hide their van because they're totally petrified. Well, the next morning, there's a knock on their door, the hotel door, and they open it. It's the sheriff. Are you Lewis Fulwiler? And Lewis goes, yeah. He said, we've been looking all over town for you. <laughs> The girls keep asking for you. <laughs> At that point, we were the girls. The girls keep asking for you, you know? Um, so anyway, we wound up in court that day on a Sunday with Timer Moses, who proceeded to get us off on disturbing the peace charges with $35 fine apiece, which kind of whipped out our you know we weren't traveling with very much money and there were no credit cards you know we were kind of kind of broke us but 35 dollars paid for timer moses fee and our fine and we were out of town and then there was patch going like i think we should stay here and fight this and i'm going like what what i should have known oh it was illegal i could tell it was you know it was a totally i think we should stay here and fight it. i said what stay here in livingston montana for the next six months you know, and he's so tired. We should stay and fight it. We should just stay and fight it. Oh, God. Should have known. Should have known. <laughs> so birthday parties were, were a big excuse to have an event, a costume event or a theater event or a balloon party event and that sort of thing. And, you know, when I made the Don't Beat a Dead Horse movie, we had a dead horse. So Patch made a lot of Super 8 movies during the commune years. We would play some excerpts, but they're all silent movies. 
paint us the picture of how that led to be. This was one that happened at, at our property in West Virginia when we bought the 80 acres, okay? And I remember up the hill, we found the dead horse. So we made a movie where a couple of us came up to beat the dead horse. Dressed and, as wizards. And Kid Hayes, as an angel, comes down as an angel and said, thou shalt not beat a dead horse. And so the beaters of the horse slink away. It's a riot. You know, I have, I've watched all of those Super 8s some, at some point this year, and there's so many grand treats. We would do all naked things. Okay, so tell us about Barf Along with Bulimics, another one of your art movies, Super 8s. Yes, well, Libby Bear was a bulimic. That's Shorty Bear's sister. She had been hospitalized for it, and, and she wasn't helped by these hospitalizations. She was called fucked up, and, and so I thought up as a doctor that if we throw up with her, she'll see she's just one of the team. We had her come in. I remember she was sitting down at our old piano table in the kitchen and throws up and there's Dave Brittingham throwing up and I'm throwing up and and we're all throwing up with her. And, you know, in homeopathy, an ancient healing technique or an old healing technique, there's a phrase, like treats like. When you're treating somebody with a homeopathic remedy, if you hear a system of symptoms, you think of what remedy causes those reactions and you give that, and that's why they say like treats like. So the, the film is fabulous, you've seen it. There we are sitting around the table and one thing that throwing up does is it triggers other people to throw up. And so at least six people throw up and what was great is that a small biker gang came in at the same time and they were freaked out because we're having fun and they're freaked out that we're barking. While she was bulimic for years, it was very private, okay? You eat, you throw up. And, and other people didn't know. And here, everybody knew. And so I think it did pretty much stop her throwing up. That's my memory of it. Whether or not she never did it again is one thing, but she was doing it every day. And I think it dramatically affected that. In the same way with the dead horse, right? As soon as you see a dead horse and you know the phrase, you can't beat a dead horse, we found out you can beat a dead horse until an angel comes and tells you not to beat the dead horse. Yes, it's truly the epitome of how you choose to exist um, in a rebellious way of living, um, anti-authoritarian. One of these motorcycles is a big 1,000cc Harley-Davidson. The other Harley-Davidson's 250cc street bike, built to feel, ride, and look like a classic Harley-Davidson, with Harley-Davidson acceleration, power, durability. If you can't tell it from our big bike C or AMF Harley-Davidson dealer, experience the SS250 yourself. What led you to start seeing some um, motorcycle gang members? And then what 
led to you having the protection, is this right, of some motorcycle gang? My big memory of motorcycle gang is that Pat Burhands, she was a member, especially at the West Virginia property, and her, her husband was a famous motorcycle gang leader. He would come by with members and just make sure his ex-wife and children were doing okay and he saw they were doing okay. You know, we were not a biker gang and we made a lot of jokes about biker gangs. There was a time of a, a rival motorcycle game came and harassed the commune. You know, I don't want to be inaccurate, but I can remember that rival gangs came to check us out as the hippies and the zanies and that sort of thing. It didn't break out into a violent thing because we were, we couldn't have been wimpier and, and un, unviolent. As the people in the shoes getting all born of the 60s was experiment, 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 and humor. Monty Python was, was influencing everybody. I created the sensual box, which was another great milestone in my life because I thought, especially being a hippie, I thought, why not make a chamber that gave you maximum stimulation to all your senses at the same time? Now, the sensual box is one of Patch's DIY inventions. Buckle up, listeners. This one is ridiculous and fabulous and hilarious and really weird. The sensual box is the opposite of a sensory deprivation tank, where in the sensual box, all of your senses would be stimulated at the same time. So this next conversation is an excerpt between Lars Patch and Patch's best friend, the gorilla-suited buddy, Lewis, who we met in the previous episode. The good ride in the box was an hour or two hours long. Okay, it looked like an L that fell over and it was on these rockers and it had a chute for whatever food you wanted to eat. So it would come down the chute into your mouth there was a tube for what you wanted to smoke. There was a tube for what you wanted to drink. And there was a third tube of pharmaceutical oils like wintergreen that someone could blow the odor of wintergreen in there. It had an opening. You needed a person to sit on the rocker to make it rock. And so they would sit on it and massage your feet. And there was also a place in the back for someone to reach in and massage your shoulder and neck, and also to show strange Super 8 films that we love to show. Uh, there was a period where I liked the three-hour ride. I mean, the connection to Lewis was, he said, I'm gonna make a box for two people. Lewis being a person who likes to make love and be naughty, 
with a partner inside of a, a, a sensual box. So having a partner in there would be great. Whatever happened to that, Lewis? Well, years ago, after my first wife and I separated, not because of the central box, but it was part of the part of the background. Uh, we, I gave it to a neighbor, and I'm sure I, who knows. But yeah, we we had one for two, and we had one for one. You could use it, you know, with a friend, you know. And it was a central box, but it was also great with kids because up in the it had in the ceiling. We had a light show that was, you know, synced with the music. We could get kids in there and literally make them believe we took off. You know, we were going somewhere. And we did patent it. You know? See, that's why it was always fun, because yeah, the patent never really worked. We didn't get a patent, but it would probably work now. But back then, it was never a challenge or anybody to make anything similar. Way ahead of its time, Lewis. It was. It was, of course, ahead of its time. And, and But, I mean, the kind of fun you just never knew happened. Like when we had the patent attorney come over and take a ride in the box. You've waited long enough. The ultimate white knuckler is ready. But before you ride it, take a good, long look. What led to closing and what, how, what did that look like? How did that feel? So Lars is asking his dad about the closure of the commune's free clinic. All good things come to an end, and Patch's commune, the Zanies, did not last forever. You know, how many years are you gonna stick to a dream? And when you have 20 people I think we had involved at that time, you know, however enthusiastic you are, there can be 10 that are not enthusiastic at all. I can't do this anymore. Or, you, come on, Patch, it's never going to happen. And we're in the 51st year and it hasn't happened, so... <laughs> and I'm still, the need is overwhelming. Right now, your medical bill is the number one reason you lose your home. You had no tools. You had no other examples uh, in the sense of like, you were rejecting so many layers of how you were raised and how your parents were raised. And like, you were put so much into these social experiments and living communally and trying to reprogram yourselves that it's understandable, like the burnout is understandable. I know your, your inability to burn out is also understandable. Like I, your optimism and you're always, you've always had the gumption and the energy to do it, but that other people burnt out and got overwhelmed and overpowered by all the other powers that be, politics, lack of money, funding, um, yeah, like the, the presidents during that era weren't throwing you guys any bones at all. And so people had children and they're like, well, I need to raise these children and I want to make sure they have a little more stability than we have here at the clown commune. 
Did I fuck over this young man's life? No, you didn't, Patch, but I'm just saying it's complicated and you add that many layers of, hey, we never know who's gonna walk in the house and I'm trying to raise two children. I I can understand needing to separate from that while like still, you know, encouraging your dream. In the next episode, we dive deeper into the story of Patch's free hospital. Plus, we meet a psychiatrist whose life was forever changed when he met Patch, and at Patch's prodding, donned Patch's toilet costume for an adventure to the mall. Stay tuned for episode six. Thanks for listening. It's the Best Day of My Life is produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios. Produced by Lars and Patch Adams, Rainbow Valentine, and Thessaly Lerner. Produced and edited by Stuart Hooper. Directed by Thessaly Lerner. Scored, mixed, and mastered by Ryan Reeves. Narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Music by Hope for a Golden Summer, Noodle McDoodle, Will Collins, The Ukulele, Paul Middleton, Gabby Lala, and Greg Moore. Theme and communal song by Noodle McDoodle. Thanks to Derek Busby, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our audience. So this series is produced by a team of all volunteers passionate about sharing stories that make the world more awesome. If you can help us in any way, swing by rainbowvalentine.com and send us an email. I'm Rainbow Valentine. Thanks for listening. Raise a glass to the downfall of evil.